Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1090 in that Bible. It is good to be back preaching with you guys again. It's been a while. We've had uh, a wonderful last number of weeks with some guest speakers and with our lead pastor, Mesh, sharing uh, all really good, important stuff. And as we uh, get ready now, we're starting a new series that we are going to be in. Uh, they'll take us through to the summer. Um, and as we get ready to do that, we were actually supposed to start this series last week, and then kind of last minute we got a call and they said, Randy Friesen's in town. I don't know if you'd be interested at all in hearing what Randy has to say, uh, but he's available and he's literally staying down the street. So if you wanted him to come over and prophesy the word of the Lord over your house and what God's doing to the ends of the earth, he's around and available. And so we just thought, you know, you don't say no when Randy Friesen's in the neighborhood and is going to come and share what God's doing all over the world. But it works out really well because the series that we are starting is called Ecclesia, which is a word I will unpack. Uh, lessons from the book of Acts, and we're just going to start in the book of Acts, Acts 1, verse 1, and we're going to start to work our way through it over the next couple of months. And we're not going to get too far, uh, but we just wanted to take a book of the Bible and just start to work through a book of the Bible together as a church. And as we start in the book of Acts, uh, it really worked out, I think, quite providentially because uh, I said to Randy as he, as he was coming, we're going to start this series on the book of Acts, and the week before, you're just going to bring an experience of the book of Acts to us. And so uh, we can get everybody kind of stirred up and thinking that way, what is life in the Holy Spirit like? Because Randy is a man of the Holy Spirit. And so we're starting this off today. Ecclesia. Say that with me. Ecclesia. Uh, some people would say Ecclesia, but I talk to actual Greek people who say, no, it's Ecclesia. So that is the right way to pronounce it. And it's a word that shows up multiple times in the New Testament. And it's a word that shows up outside the New Testament as well. And as it gets defined uh, in various places in literature at the time, it gets translated into English in various ways. Uh, often it's a community or a gathering or an assembly. Uh, it's a called out group. And what that means is it's a group that is different than kind of uh, normal life. Like you, you have your normal life, you go to your job and everything, but this is a group that's kind of different than that. Uh, in the Bible terms, we would say this is a group that is holy. This is a group that is set apart. And so ecclesia means all of these things. And sometimes when we dig into a word, we can get some of the understanding of it a little bit better. When that word gets translated in the New Testament, it simply gets translated as church. Every time you see the word church in the New Testament, it's ecclesia. And so the church is this assembly. It is this gathering. It is this coming together. It is this family. It is this called out group that when the world is dark and the world is evil, there is a called out group. There's a group that is different than that, where we can come together and encourage each other in our faith and learn from the word of God and spur one another on and pray for one another and lean on one another. In a dark world, the church is the same separate family, this separate gathering, this separate assembly. And as we go through the book of Acts, Acts really is the story of the church. It is where the church begins, 
where the church begins to spread, where the gospel starts to go to the nations. And so we have the gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell us the story of Jesus, his life and times, his death and resurrection. And then Acts is what happens next, after Jesus has died, after he has risen, after he has returned to heaven. What happened after that? Acts tells us that story. The full name of the book is the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, it could easily be called, really, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit really is the main character in this book. And it's not that the apostles didn't do stuff. It is literally the stories of the things they did after Jesus returned to heaven. But it is the Holy Spirit in them. And they would make clear, even through the book of Acts, that we as the apostles are just men. We have nothing special to offer other than we are willing for the Spirit to move through us. And we are willing to submit ourselves to God and let him use us for whatever he wants to do. So let's take a look at our text. We're in Acts chapter 1, just starting right at the beginning. Luke is writing this book, which we will come back to, and he begins. Acts 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So these are literally the last words of Jesus before he returns to heaven. Jesus has died. He has been resurrected. And as that has happened, he's not quite done his earthly ministry just yet. There's this 40-day period where he gives his final instructions of here is what is going to happen next. So the teaching time was not done. Uh, and as Luke begins to write this book down, as he begins to write and record what is happening in Acts, uh, he is wanting to capture, obviously, these last few moments of Jesus' life. So Jesus has died, he has risen again, and this is kind of the epilogue of Jesus' earthly life and the prologue of the book of Acts altogether. This is the last piece of the puzzle, uh, the last words of Jesus before he returns. So verse 1 and 2 of our text today, Luke writes, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had. Had chosen. And so this is Luke writing the book of Acts, and when he talks about my former book, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke. That is his former book. And so in his former book, which we know as the Gospel of Luke, he has been telling the story of Jesus, and now he is looking to tell a different story. But Luke has written the Gospel of Luke, and he has written the book of Acts. Uh, because of that, he is 
the single biggest contributor to the New Testament. He has written the most. Paul has written more books, but they're shorter. Luke and Acts are big books, so Luke is the single biggest contributor. Paul is second. So he's written a lot that we take seriously as we are trying to know the Lord and know the gospel and understand Jesus and understand the church and all of these things. And Luke, it's not nailed down exactly who he is. We don't know tons about him. Traditionally, he's been understood to be a doctor. He was a physician. It's interesting, as a doctor uh, in the Gospel of Luke, he spends more time than the other Gospel writers talking about the miracles and the healings of Jesus. That's just kind of where his head was at uh, as a doctor. Uh, he, we believe he might have been Paul's physician, and what we know for sure is that he was a, a figure in the early church. He traveled at times with the apostles and spreading the Gospel. He might have been a Gentile, which just means anyone who is not Jewish, and he gives a lot of attention uh, to the Gentiles and the Gospel going to the Gentiles, and so he seems to emphasize that. But he wrote these two parts. Uh, there's a two-part epic that he wrote. Part one is the Gospel of Luke, the life story of Jesus Christ. Part two is the book of Acts, what happened next. And he writes both of these books to someone called Theophilus. So in the verse we just read, I wrote this to you, Theophilus, uh, to understand what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. In Luke's gospel, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he writes, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And so Luke writes the Gospel of Luke to this Theophilus guy to say, you know what, other people have been writing Gospels, and I have investigated these things. He sounds kind of doctorly, like he's looking to the evidence, he's looking to the proof, he's trying to put together a detailed account, and he's sending it to Theophilus so that he might know the certainty of the things that he has been taught. We don't actually know who Theophilus is, other than Luke wrote him these two books. And there is a suggestion that because of the term most excellent Theophilus, that was a term that was usually used as a bit of flattery for an official, so that he was very possibly a Roman official who had either just come to the faith or was in the process of seeking and coming to the faith. But Luke says, I wanted to write down a clear account of Jesus Christ, and then later a clear account of the book of Acts, so that you, Theophilus, could understand this gospel. You could understand what this is all about. And so Luke is writing this to this man to, to show who Jesus is. And as Luke writes these things down, he is really working as an evangelical historian. Uh, he is trying to convince Theophilus that Jesus Christ is Lord, but he's also wanting to be very careful with times and dates and timelines, and he's trying to do a good, you know, good homework in presenting this account of Jesus and presenting this account of the early church. Verse 3, Acts 1, verse 3, he writes, After Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them, the apostles, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And so the gospel stories tell us that when Jesus rose from the dead, he did some things that were just sort of there to demonstrate that he is a flesh and blood body. Uh, he breaks bread with the disciples from the road to Emmaus. He sits with his disciples on a beach. They eat fish together. Uh, Pastor Mesh shared a couple of weeks ago with Thomas. Uh, Thomas was invited to see the wounds that had killed him and to, to touch and just see this is uh, an actual human being. This is not a ghost. This is not a vision. Uh, this is not a dream that you are having. Jesus gives many convincing proofs that he is actually flesh and blood and that he is alive. He was demonstrating that he was a physical body that had come back 
back from the dead. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, and 6, that Jesus appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, and then to the 12 apostles. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That just this reminder that it wasn't just about Jesus showing himself to a few people. There were over 500 who saw him alive. And Paul notes, I mean, some of them have died, but a lot of them still live. A lot of them are still alive. You can go talk to them. There are living eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ and who saw these convincing proofs that he was alive. So it's not, uh, as some atheists would suggest, that the apostles kind of got together and just kind of made up a plan to try and keep this religion going. Uh, there were hundreds of people who witnessed that Jesus is alive, who saw those proofs. And so as much as we take the resurrection as a matter of faith, that we just trusted by faith, it's also grounded in just evidence. It's grounded in history. It's grounded in fact. That's a lot of people to see someone alive. And, and Paul saying, if you don't believe, go talk to them. They're still alive as I'm writing you this letter. So there's evidence there that many witnessed this Jesus alive, not just a few. Acts 1, 4, and 5. On one occasion, in this 40-day teaching period, while Jesus is eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That there is something in the heart of God uh, that calls us to baptism by water, where we're immersed in water, and it's a symbol of the washing away of our sins. It's a symbol of rebirth. It's a symbol of new life. Uh, it is the acknowledgement of what God has done in our lives, and with thankfulness we go into the waters of baptism, uh, and, and it's a symbol. It's not that we're saved because of it, but the baptism represents what God is doing in our lives, that we are being washed, we are being cleansed, we are rising up to new life. And Jesus says that dunking in the water where you're just kind of washed and cleansed and the water is all around you, that, that refreshing plunge into the literal water of baptism, that's what the Father wants to do with you in the Holy Spirit. That's the experience of God that he wants you to have, where the Holy Spirit is not just a theory or not just a, a theological affirmation. We believe in the Father, Son, and Spirit, but where you have an experience of the Holy Spirit that is like being dunked in water, like that that's how real the Holy Spirit will be to you. And so Jesus says to his apostles, he's been telling them all the way along, as he's been mentoring them the last three years, he's been saying, you will be going after I go, and you will be sharing this gospel to the ends of the earth, and you will be persecuted, and it will be hard, but you are going to go, and you are going to be preachers of the good news of the kingdom. And as he has now died and risen from the dead, and it would seem like, okay, so he has won the victory, the gospel needs to go, now is the moment, and Jesus says, wait. Jesus says, wait for the gift my Father promised, which is the Holy Spirit. You wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And we know from the Apostle Peter's personality, he was like an all-in, charge ahead, let's go, like no matter what. And he sometimes said dumb things because he was like that. But he is certainly enthusiastic and certainly zealous. And Peter, I imagine, is just kind of ready to go. And, and they've seen the risen Savior. What more faith do you need? We have spent time with him. He's proven he's alive. Let's go start sharing this gospel to the world. And Jesus says, go to Jerusalem, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Don't try and do this by yourself. 
And that was a warning that they needed. And that is a warning that we need as well, because it is very, very easy to just try and do things by ourselves and just to say, you know what, I'm just going to trust that God's with me and I'm going to do it, or I'm going to pray for two minutes and then just assume he's on my side and I'm going to do it. And the call to the apostles was don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. Don't do anything until the Holy Spirit has come. You wait on the Lord, and waiting is a lost art, because in our life, we don't have to wait for pretty much anything. We don't have to wait for anything. I know many parents have had this conversation, me trying to explain to my children, when I was a kid, you used to have to wait for cartoons to come on at a time. Like, it's lost. They don't get it at all, just as my—I didn't get it when my parents talked about, you know, black and white TV and, and radio. Like, it's just, it's just so foreign. And we go, man, how do we raise kids who aren't spoiled when pretty much everything is on demand everywhere, even the shows that we watch? And trying to say to my kids, like, you guys are fighting over what show to stream, but it's like there was, you know, just a cartoon on it. 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that's what you watched. Like, there was just, you couldn't fight with your spouse. There was nothing else to watch. That was it. Or your uh, sibling. Sorry, not your spouse. That was weird. <laughs> your sibling, to be clear. But you just didn't have an option. Am I fighting with my spouse a lot? Is that what's on my mind? Is that... There were just no choices, and, and now everything's on demand, and we don't have to wait for anything, and everything's drive-through, and Amazon brings it right to your door, and like just everything is so there, and waiting on God is just a lost art where we say, you know what? God's timing's perfect, and I'm going to patiently wait until he says it's right. You know, we don't do that. God, what are you doing? Why is it taking so long? What is going on? I've been faithful. I've done this. I've done that. It's like, no, you wait until God says go. You wait. And that waiting theme shows up often in Scripture. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Right? In the waiting, be strong. In the waiting, be encouraged. But wait for the Lord. Don't try and do it on your own. Isaiah 40, 30 and 31. Randy brought this up last week. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. The young men shall utterly fail, shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We get weary, we stumble, we fall when we try to do it on our own. But to wait upon the Lord, to wait upon his timing, to seek the filling of the Spirit, that is when we soar. And if we just try to do it on our own all the time, that's where we get exhausted, and that's where things fall apart. To wait upon the Lord uh, is a different way to approach it. Psalm 40, verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me, and he heard my cry. Part of the waiting is trusting that he hears. Even if it doesn't look like he is responding right now, trusting that he hears our cry anyway, we wait patiently for him to do it. And then, whoa, my clicker leapt ahead. Psalm 135, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. That's a good one when you're waiting for anything. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. Even if I don't see the answer coming, even if I don't see the, the breakthrough happening, I will wait upon the Lord. And, and where do we do this in our lives? Like, where do we carve out time just to wait on the Lord? Uh, Randy brought up last week, we'll get to it next week in the book of Acts, that the apostles after this are going to go to Jerusalem, and for 10 days they're going to pray and wait upon the Lord. They're going to have a 10-day prayer meeting. Man, what's my prayer life look like? Five minutes? Ten minutes? Like, what does it look like? Am I sitting in the presence of God? Am I sitting and digging into the Word of God? Am I engaging with others? 
Am I waiting on the Lord in my life? And, and again, not just, uh, as Randy said last week, just kind of like waiting like you're sitting around bored, but to actively and, and expectantly come with hope, as Jeff challenged us leading worship this morning. You know, did you come expecting today? Or are we going through the motions of church? Or are we coming in saying, you know what? I have the opportunity to have an encounter with God this morning. I have an opportunity to hear from God this morning. I have an opportunity to, to bless someone or be a blessing in the name of God. Are we waiting upon the Lord in our life? Because Jesus said, don't do anything until the Holy Spirit comes. You don't move until the Spirit comes. And we are admonished regularly in the Bible that we are to be seeking the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled and refilled and refilled. It's not a one-time filling where we can say, hey, I had a great experience at camp 10 years ago, and I'm just going to coast on that until eternity. It's like, God bless your experience with camp. Go look for another one. Come expectant and hungry to say, you know what? I don't want to just coast from, you know, big mountaintop experiences once in a while in order to get me through this life. The life is too hard. We need to be filled and refilled and refilled and refilled. And the Spirit is with us and available 24-7. He is there always ready to refill. And if our prayer is not daily, Father, fill me with your Spirit. I cannot do this without you. The apostles had just spent three years with Jesus. They had performed miracles in his name. They had done healings. They had driven out demons. They had preached the gospel. They had seen and experienced miracles that Jesus did, but they had also gone out and done them themselves. And Jesus still said to that group, don't move until the Holy Spirit comes. You cannot do this without him. And that is true of many, many areas in life for all of us. It's good advice for all of us. We can't do it by ourselves. That loved one that you're praying for to come to Jesus are not going to come to Jesus because you all of a sudden come up with the right words by yourself to convince them. They will come to Jesus when the Holy Spirit shows them who Jesus is and opens up the eyes of their understanding. That's the only reason any of us have come to Jesus. If we're reading our Bible, the only reason we have any understanding of that Bible is because the Holy Spirit is opening up the eyes of our understanding. We can't do that on our own. We have a wonderful leadership team here at the church, but if we're putting our hope in a leadership team for the church to advance, we're putting our hope in the wrong place. And we certainly pray and seek God. We are certainly pressing in, but it is the Holy Spirit that will bring revival to Leamington. It's not any of us. We're doing the best we can, but that is not on us. Our job is to be faithful and respond. Our job is to be obedient to where we believe that he is leading us. But it's the Holy Spirit that is building the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. And if all we're doing is leaning on ourselves, like we, we do have stuff we can do on our own. We can actually coast pretty good. We've got our personalities, we've got our strength, we've got our drive, we've got money, we've got gifts, we've got whatever we've got. Like, we can accomplish a fair bit on our own. In the Genesis account of the Tower of Babel, the people say, we're going to build a great tower to make a great name for ourselves, and they start building the tower, and they're doing it. Like, they are succeeding at building it for themselves until God stops them in it. We can accomplish things on our own, but we cannot accomplish anything that's going to last into eternity by ourselves. We are not eternal. We are mortal. 
And so if we want things that are going to last and that are going to last for eternity, that are going to deal with eternal things like salvation and the gospel, it has to be the Holy Spirit who does it because he's the only eternal one. And so if we are leaning on ourselves to do it, we're leaning in the wrong place. We will stumble. We will fall. We will get weary. We will run out of gas. But those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will not grow faint because he is the one strengthening us. And I've done both in my ministry. I have tried on my own, and I've done it with him. It's so much easier doing it with him. It's so much easier when it's out of just the overflow of what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. Because then it's not tiring, and then you don't stumble. Then it is, it is good. It is refreshing. It is him doing the work. And then we get our eyes off ourselves, which we're supposed to do anyway, and we get our eyes off our circumstances, which we're supposed to do anyway, and we're not overwhelmed with, oh, how am I going to bring that person to Jesus, or how am I going to grow this ministry, or how am I going to reach out to that person? Because you go, I don't actually need to know the answers to any of that. The Holy Spirit already knows, and my job is to walk with him. My job is to seek him and respond to the best of my understanding and trust that as he leads, he will provide the power to do whatever it is that he wants to do. And when we do that, we are willing vessels and we are open and available, which we're supposed to be. But the Holy Spirit does all the heavy lifting and Jesus Christ gets all of the glory. Because it's not about, well, I'm such a smooth speaker that I led that person to Jesus or, or you know, our church is got such great programs that that's why it's growing. I mean, we do have great programs here, but we want the Spirit to be moving because that is fruit that is going to last. And so we are to continually be seeking the filling of the Spirit. As the story continues, verse 6, they gathered around him, the apostles, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so uh, for the people of Jesus' time, they really had expectations of what the Messiah was going to be like. And there's lots of Old Testament prophecy that they were wrestling through. But they really pictured that the Messiah, as they came, as he came, was going to look a little bit like that. They really thought conquering warrior king. And when Israel at the time was under the oppression of Rome, and Rome is uh, just kind of dominating them in every way, oppressing them, they're in bondage. Uh, Rome is trying to quench the Jewish faith and, and tear down the uh, religious you know, values of this country and trying to make them pagan. And all of this is going on. Israel at that time, as they read the Bible, said, oh, when the Messiah comes, he's going to come and slaughter the Romans and kick them out. And, and there was reasonable reason to come to that interpretation because there were verses that talked about the Messiah is going to be like King David, who was this great warrior king. And the Messiah is going to come and sit on David's throne. And he's going to come and restore the kingdom. And so Israel at that time interpreted that as, okay, well, when the Messiah comes, he will be a warrior like David. He will kill his enemies like David did. And then he will restore the kingdom of Israel. And when the Messiah comes to break the chains, he's obviously going to break the chains of the Roman oppressors. And he's going to bring freedom to Israel. He's going to restore us back. And David's throne will be secure. And that's what the Messiah is. And it's not unreasonable, but they just happen to be wrong in how they were interpreting it. 
And so when they say in Acts 1 here, uh, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? That's what they're expecting. They are saying, okay, now, finally, you have died. You've risen from the dead. There's a great victory. We get all that. But surely now you're going to kill all the Romans and go sit in David's chair. That's what's happening now. Is now the time? We've been waiting for this. Is now the time? And they were just wrong. They just misinterpreted. And there's just a good warning in there for all of us that we all can misunderstand Scripture. Uh, that's something we're all capable of. The apostles, again, they'd been with him for three years. They knew their Bibles. They knew Jesus. They knew what he was up to, and they just misunderstood. And so there's a humility required of all of us where we say, hey, we are prayerfully engaging with the Bible. None of us have it perfectly figured out, and that's why we do this together. That's why we wrestle through the text together. And some of you sometimes will come and sit with me and say, I didn't agree with that sermon, or I didn't like that, and we'll have a conversation, and I need to hear what you have to say, and you need to hear what I have to say, and we need to, to do that together, because nobody has this figured out perfectly. And so they misunderstood what Jesus was, was really all about. So Lord, are you coming now, finally? To, to slaughter the Romans and kick them out and set up the kingdom of Israel. Have we finally arrived at that point? And Jesus' response is, that's not for you to know. Oh, what an answer. Remember when your parents used to say that? That's not for you to know. He doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He says, I'm actually not going to give you an answer. Only the Father has the answer to that. And so as he answers in that way, it's not for you to know. Uh, we also need to be okay with that answer as followers of Jesus. We can ask God any question that we want. He is not obligated to answer us anything at all. And so if we get an answer, that's incredible. And that is a blessing, and we are grateful. Sometimes the answer for us is going to be, it's not for you to know. You will not have understanding on everything in this life. Our daughter is eight and uh, just has started asking questions that kids start to ask as they get a little older uh, along the lines of like, oh, well, where do babies come from? And, and how does the, I get that the baby's in the tummy, but how does the baby come out of the tummy? And uh, just things like that. And so when Kaylee comes and asks us that, I say, okay, good luck with that, Sarah. Have fun. Uh, <laughs> sorry, a girl was born first, so that's your job, and I'll, I'll deal with Matt in a few years. And obviously at eight, there's a lot she shouldn't know at that point, right? There's age-appropriate stuff, and yet uh, Sarah has been talking to her about some things, kind of broad, basic things that are appropriate to an eight-year-old. She will learn more as she gets older, of course. But there's times, and Kaylee just asks a lot of questions, she always has, there's times when our answer to her is, uh, Han will tell you that when you're older. Like you're, that's, that's not for you to know right now. Uh, you just need to trust us. Sometimes the kids will ask us for something, and we'll say no, and they'll say why, and they'll just, we'll just say, ah, because, because we're mom and dad, and you're not. <laughs> like, that's, that is an appropriate answer for kids, and to say, you know what? I know more than you. I'm smarter than you. I'm much smarter than you. I have lived longer. I know more. You're just going to have to—I don't say it like that, but <laughs> you're just going to have to trust me that— no is the right answer for you. You're just going to have to trust me in that. And every, I see parents are nodding there. You know that, right? Your parents did that for you, and you're doing that for your kids. And so if that's okay for us to do, parent to child, just understanding, well, there's different maturity levels there, obviously, uh, then how much more should we be okay with that if it's mortal to God, right? If God is the one where we're going, okay, I, I get it. There are, there are things I'm just not going to know in this life. 
I am not entitled to answers on anything. God has the right to share what he wants. And there's actually a lot of peace that we can get to on this one, where if the answer from heaven is that's not for you to know, we can say, okay, well, if I needed to know it, God is good and he would let me know it. And if I'm not getting the answer I'm looking for, I can just going to choose to trust that that's not something I need to know. I may want to know it, but it's not something that I need to know. So Jesus doesn't give them the answer. Um, but he just kind of actually changes the topic and says, okay, let's stop talking about Israel. Let's stop talking about the throne and what you guys think is going to happen. Because here is actually the point. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And that's the point where earlier he said, wait, because if you don't wait, you're not going to have any power when you go out. You're not going to be able to convince anybody of anything because it's just going to be a bunch of guys talking about Jesus. There's going to be no power of heaven behind them in doing what they're doing. So when Jesus says, wait for the Spirit to come, he says, this is why, because you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And then when you share Jesus, spiritual eyes can actually be opened. Right? And then when you're talking about the kingdom, it'll actually go into people's hearts and make a difference. And when you pray for people, heaven will respond, and there will be changed lives, and there will be miracles, and there will be things that happen, because it's not you just doing it on your own. You're doing it in the power of the Spirit, because that's the only power there is. That's what we need more than anything, to be seeking the moving and the power, the anointing of the Spirit. Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Spirit comes, and then go and be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, the surrounding areas, and then out even till the ends of the earth, that Jesus wants the whole world. He wants all of it. He came and died for all of it. This mission is global, and every one of us has a part to play. And even if you don't literally go to the nations, you're not heading to Africa, wherever God has planted you now, that is your mission field. And there are people there who are ripe for the harvest right now. And if we're putting, again, our hope in, well, I'll read a book about evangelism techniques, and that will give me the right words to convince them logically, we're missing the point. And not that that's not a great book. I've read those books, and they're helpful. But the real hard part is, if I want that person to come to Jesus, I'm going to have to pray like crazy. And I'm going to have to fast. And I'm going to have to get on my face before the Lord and cry out to Him. And I'm going to have to wait upon Him and call out to him and understand that it's all him. And it's easier just to say, hey, what technique did that person use? Let me cut and paste that into this situation, rather than do the difficult work of pressing into God and fasting and seeking him and, and really getting on your face before him and saying, Lord, this person needs to come to Jesus. I don't know how to do it. Fill me with your spirit and with your power and show me what to do. Give me the words to say. That might take longer. And again, we don't like to wait for things. But the power is in the Holy Spirit. It's not in ourselves. It's not in the words. Uh, it's not even in the church by itself, other than when the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church. Like, we need Him. He is the key to all of it. Uh, there is nothing we can do without Him. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. If we want to build something that's going to last, it has to be in step with Him. There is no other way to do it. Verse 9, after Jesus said that, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Uh, we call this the ascension. It is well represented in art and uh, in lots of different places that Jesus had said, I'm going to return to heaven, and this is where he does. Uh, he has risen from the dead. He has walked on earth for 40 more days, and now he is returning to heaven, and the cloud covers so that you can't see uh, where he went after that. Luke goes on and says in verse 10, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. Uh, so they're watching, hey, when, what just happened? You didn't say goodbye, exactly. So are you, what just, where did you go? 
they're looking into the clouds. What is happening? Uh, it actually takes angels showing up. Two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here and look into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so it's not crystal clear that they're angels. That is certainly strongly implied. We have seen them before as well in Luke's gospel at the empty tomb. There are two men in white, uh, the Bible says, and they are there saying, he is not here, he is risen. And so two angels actually have to come and kind of nudge them along. That they're just standing there saying, hey, Jesus, where'd you go? What's going on? And they're saying, no, he told you to go wait in Jerusalem. He told you to go and start seeking the Holy Spirit. And we'll get into this next week, but they're going to go and start their 10-day prayer meeting of, I'm sure, fasting and praying and pressing into God and saying, Lord, we need you. We need the baptism of the Spirit. We need this to happen. And so these men come to nudge him along and say, but just as you saw him go, that's how you'll see him come back. He will come back in the same way. And that is certainly clear throughout a number of New Testament passages that says when Jesus returns, he's coming on the clouds. They just saw him go up into the clouds. When he returns, he's coming on the clouds, whatever it actually looks like. But it's there over and over again. And this idea that the first time Jesus came, he came kind of under the radar, right? Virgin birth uh, in a little town, and his ministry was quiet. He doesn't even really show up anywhere until he's 30, and he was always trying to keep it a bit low-key. But when Jesus comes the second time, there's nothing low-key about it next time. He's coming with the trumpet blasts and the hosts of heaven on the clouds of glory. And scripture says the whole world will see it when he comes the second time. And so in these few verses is a pretty decent snapshot of the gospel, uh, this story that we are all a part of, that Jesus came, he died, he rose again, he has sent us on a mission to bring Jesus to the world, and one day he will come back. And while we wait for him to come back, our job is to share this gospel. Again, not because we're so smart or so great, not because we figured out great techniques or anything like that, but to share this gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit is there, that's when things happen. That's when things change. Come on up, worship team. We have an email address, uh, questions at meadowbrook.ca. If you've got questions about any of these uh, scriptures we've talked about or, or anything you want to chat about, we are more than happy to sit and have that discussion. So please feel free to use this uh, to keep this conversation going. We are going to pray uh, after we worship for one more song. We open up the altars and say, if you want prayer for anything, come on forward. And as we do that, we want to uh, just again remind you i guess we say this every week but we can pray for anything up here but if you just are saying hey i just need a refilling of the holy spirit like i would never turn that down if somebody came and said hey can we pray for you to be filled with the spirit i think the right answer is always yes absolutely so we will open up we'll have some people here who can pray uh we can pray for anything but even and especially that if that's something that you're just needing today where it's just jesus i just need to a touch from you. I just need to feel refreshed. I need a bit of peace. I need a bit of hope or, or anything. Uh, we just want to pray for that. And for just us to reflect on today and this week, uh, where are you at with the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you actively seeking that thing? And, and if not, what might that look like in your prayer life, in your Bible time? We've talked in the past about the pathways, the different ways that we can connect with God. Like, what would that look like in terms of where can I draw close to him? Where can I get refreshed? Where can I get renewed? Because if we can't do this without him, if Jesus said, don't move until the Holy Spirit comes, and he said that to the apostles, we're not greater than the apostles. Uh, we need that just as much, maybe more, than they do. 
So to seek the Spirit every day and to pray that prayer and to have that be a part of your life, not just on Sundays, but every day. Where is the Spirit at in your life? We're going to talk a lot about the Spirit in this series. We're going to get to know Him better. But to begin with that prayer, fill me, Lord. I can't do this without you. Would you stand with me, please? We will worship, and then we will close in prayer. Uh, living our lives for Christ and there's a, a great word in scripture as Pastor Chris talked about witnesses, being witnesses as the Holy Spirit uses us as you're a witness, when you go to court you're a witness, you tell a story and you give details of a story and we have the opportunity to be witnesses of the kingdom as the Holy Spirit uses us and leads us so we can share his story about the power of the Holy Spirit so as you go into your week Ask the Holy Spirit to lead you, to encourage you, to be a witness. Not because of anything we can do, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Because none of us can do this on our own. And it's amazing to know that we have an advocate, the Holy Spirit, to lead us in all things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you that the Holy Spirit can give us insight and help us in our prayer life and help us to live this life, to convict of a sin, of, to lead us in all things, to give us the insight we need. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and you would shower over each one, over each family, over each person as we head into this week, that you would lead us in all things, that as we read your word, as we spend time worshiping you, as we spend time with other people, that the Holy Spirit would be evident in who we are. Lord, thank you that your grace and your mercy is with us as well in those times when we come in front of you when we've stumbled or when we've made a mistake or done something thank you the lord that you forgive us and thank you that the holy spirit continues to lead us so lord help us to have repentful hearts and and live a life uh, that honors you so thank you again for leading us in all things we ask this in the name of jesus amen just a reminder before you leave we have people up front that are trained and more than willing to pray with you so we encourage you to come and as people are coming this morning to receive prayer if you want to visit please do that but do that in the foyer and now the hallway have a great